Hello, everybody. Welcome to our teleseminar today. Um, welcome to this entire teleseminar series, actually, Sacred Earth Activism, feeling so important at this time in our relationship with Earth and all her beings. Um, today, our teleseminar topic is peace, people, and ecology. Um, with a dear friend of mine, Rena um, Keatum, who is an environmental peace builder from Israel. And I've known her for many years and been really privileged to see the evolution of um, her life, her heart, her relationship with the earth. And um, she really brings something very special, I feel, at this time. And she feels very deeply and believe deeply in peace between people um, and the land and people and people. Um, she's part of an international network of projects and communities that are involved in this work all over the world, but especially in the Middle East. Um, Rena has developed and directed cooperative projects with Palestinians, Israelis and Jordanians for the past 16 years. Her work is really guided by a holistic perspective that includes social, economic, and environmental well-being of communities, as well as hands-on and long-term peace-building opportunities. Um, she helped found a multicultural center for peace and ecology at the and you'll have to correct me, Rena, I'll probably say this wrong, the Almog Jericho Junction. <laughs> Is that right? Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and that's an area that's accessible to Israelis um, and Palestinians. And to those of us living in the United States, it may not sound like <laughs> such a big deal, a place where people can encounter each other. But in the Holy Land, it's a very big deal and very important um, for people of different um, beliefs and nationalities to be able to encounter each other. Uh, Rena is also part of a volunteer team that has built a network of ecological villages um, in Israel. Currently, she's working on her PhD in community development and environmental conservation across borders in the Department of Geography at Hebrew University, and she lives with her very sweet husband, Yair, and their two children in the Israeli desert. And she was recently part of the University of San Diego's 2019 Women Peacemakers Program. And if you saw some of the videos I, I shared um, about Rena's work, they, they came from that project. So. So a big, big hug and a huge welcome, Rena, as we connect across, I don't know, an entire continent, I think, and the ocean. It's so good to have you here today. How are you doing? Thank you, Alicia. It's good to be here. I'm, uh, I'm grateful to be able to have the time and for the people who take the time to join us to, to share our stories, our work, and our and our love to this to this environment and to our the work that one does and my work I feel it's all very aligned. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's so um, for me it's really a, a deep pleasure, Rena. We know each other so personally. 
And I feel like we have so cultivated relationships with, with earth and with life together. Um, but it's been really fun for me getting ready for this to see more of your work in the world, which I didn't know as much about. And um, I'm always touched and awed by you, and your work has been uh, no less of that for me. So, um, yeah, so real, real privilege to be your sister and a privilege to be with you today. Um, I want to start, if you don't mind, Rena, with talking about what an environmental peace builder is and just kind of start big and then we can kind of come in like more deeply. But um, can you share with us about that? What is an environmental peace builder? Sure. So an environmental peace builder would be somebody that um, devotes a lot of their work to promoting concerns that are both environmental and obviously have to do with some type of conflict. And environmental peace building can be divided into a few categories. So it could be about managing transboundary natural resources uh, between countries or even regions that have conflict. It could mm -hmm. be about the effect that war has on the environment and how to minimize that during war. And it has to do a lot with promoting cooperation. Of if we can manage to cooperate on environmental issues, then potentially we could also manage to cooperate on political issues. So an environmental okay. peace builder would be somebody also that usually enters the field either from a love and curiosity and profession in the conflict world and is just suddenly exposed to the intertwinedness of conflict and the impact it has on the environment and natural resources. And it could be somebody who comes from the field of environment, um, which is a bit more of my story, well, even though both were there, but somebody who's very engaged in ecology, environment, activism, and kind of sees and engages in the transboundary aspect that environment has and sees the impact that conflict has the environment. And that would be the entry point for somebody like that. And at the end of the day, people ask me all the time, like, what is more important, to solve the conflict or to improve environmental issues? And I think for all of us understanding, it's, it's really about both. We are, we are in mm -hmm. times where integrated thinking, analytic thinking is needed, you know, from fancy terms of sustainable development or just looking at all the social, environmental, economic, political relationships. Um, and understanding ecosystems and knowing that the more complex they are, the more stable they are, the same here. It's not about either or, that they just fit together really well. So an environmental peace builder would be somebody who usually engages in these fields, and it could be done before a conflict as a way to prevent a conflict. It could be done during a conflict or violence and war, and it could be done after as part of uh, peace building and rehabilitation and post-conflict um, efforts. Mm -hmm. And what do you, I've heard you use this uh, phrase a few times, and I have a kind of an intellectual idea about it, but I'd love if you could expand and unpack it a little bit. Transboundary. Are we just talking about boundaries <laughs> between countries, or are we talking about, um, you know, people's culturally, humans and nature, what is transboundary? 
Uh, both. That's part of why I like this term. Technically, we use it as a boundary, as a, as a human geopolitical border. Uh, but as you said, it's chance, it's a, there's so many boundaries, cultural boundaries, perception, uh, boundaries about how we manage the different environmental policies that each country or each culture has. So I think the beauty of trans boundary that it, it definitely entails all of those. And the term definitely more reflects the, the geogra geographical aspect of actual man-made geopolitical borders between countries. And, Is that um, clear, Elisa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's clear. Thank you. And um, do you feel uh, that, um, and I'm just going to use actually ecological, ecology, environmental, and nature during this interview kind of mm -hmm. interchangeably. Um, so do you feel like one of the places where people can really meet and come around things together is nature? I mean, what's the importance? Well, we know the importance of ecology. There are many things and, and nature, but I feel like there's a peace building aspect, like a platform for peace building. And I'd love to hear more about that from you. Yeah, and that's a, it's a really good, uh, good and, and powerful question because it goes uh, two ways. I mean, it's a tricky tricky one, because if we look at how environment is a good catalyst or grounds and basis for cooperation, then I can say the main reasons for that are because environmental issues are, first of all, they're very tangible. They're hands-on. So it's not mm -hmm. just that I, I meet with Palestinians and Jordanians and engage in dialogue, which is very important, and I've been doing that and will continue doing that for many years. Uh, but the environment gives us something that we share, that we can look at, and projects that can be very hands-on. So we can actually build environmental systems ranging from green building and earth building to gray water systems to solar desalination. And usually we will choose those um, technologies according to the needs of the community. And it could also, beyond the tangible and hands-on practical, uh, tools that it brings and experiences, it's also a field that requires long-term cooperation. So the reason environment is such a good issue to cooperate on is it requires long-term long -term solutions. These are not mm -hmm. e easy and fast fixes, as we know, in the world of environment and ecology. It requires depth systems and ongoing communication. And the third part of it would be that it's should engage all different levels of society. So I think all of us know early on that to create sustainable change in societies, we should work with both grassroots and communities and what we call middle range leadership, uh, which would be the municipalities, regional councils in the United States. It would be state legislation systems. And of course, the state level, the top leadership. So environmental issues also have the potential to engage all, engage all levels of society. And that's where I think where the power in these different three aspects uh, comes together. So again, we have the practical and hands-on, we have the long-term, and we have the incorporation of all levels of society. And the reason I say it's tricky is because environmental issues are always political. Like sometimes people mm -hmm. say, you know, environment transcends the political boundaries because nature knows no borders, and that's all true. The air particles of pollution, they don't mind where Israel starts and Jordan begins. 
the groundwater flowing underneath Israel and Palestine doesn't know where the boundary that men, people made crossed. And yet, land, water, energy are all political issues, especially in conflict, because the people who have, it's always a question of power. There are certain people who decide who has rights to what resources, to what quantities, and when. So as I said, it's tricky, mm-hmm. because it's not, it is a political issue, and we have to, our work is to name those sensitive issues and not ignore them or pretend that they're not political because they are. But how do we work with them knowing they are political in nature? Mm-hmm. Can, you, um, can you kind of ground all that in maybe some practical sharing about the projects and the different things that you've done? Sure. So our projects, um, <laughs> our projects engage Palestinians, Israelis, and Jordanians. Um, we work with adults and with youth, and mm-hmm. together with, I work with many different organizations, and together we work over the years with thousands of people that usually our cohort or our groups would be quite intimate. I'll give an example for your question about one of the recent projects we just uh, finished last year uh, with the support of the U.S. government through the USAID at the United States Foreign Aid Assistance. And in this project, we engaged around 230 youth and adults uh, from the region of the Dead Sea all the way down to the Red Sea. And we created a very complex and holistic uh, syllabus curriculum which involved both learning about environmental issues, going through the map, understanding the different natural resources that we share, mapping the problems we have around them, especially the issue of water, water management, Mm -hmm. and water beyond management, water as a cultural um, element. And it's important in the making of a community. So we have that aspect. Then we spoke about what we can do with these issues. How can we turn these problems into actual projects that the communities designed and eventually implemented. And only all along this process, all along there was this um, intensity regarding the political issues, regarding water, regarding land, and just the political tension that would be in every room where you have Palestinians, Israelis, and Jordanians together. But it was only at a certain stage of the project that we could according to the readiness of our participants, that we could actually start working with it. And start working with it, we open, we create safety in space, and we name that, that we're here to learn about each other's opinions. We may not agree. It may be an emotional charge process, and if we're willing to go through this together. And we did this only when the participants normally request to go there. It has to be by consent. And, and then you, we start opening. Can I ask yeah. you a question, Rena? I know there's a little time lag from here to Israel, so. <laughs> um, but you talk about <laughs> when the participants are ready, the readiness of the participants. That strikes me as um, a powerful moment and probably a very crucial moment in peace building. Can you, we'll continue on this stream, but can you, um, can you share more about that? Yeah, um, the readiness. In this case, I, I wait for very straightforward reactions, meaning they actually say in the middle of a meeting, listen, 
we want to speak about the elephant in the room. We feel that we can do this, and please, let's start talking about the political issues because they are the underlying core of all the environmental issues and the community issues that we're talking about. And what it looks like, I think, is when I would say when there's enough um, curiosity that is created between, between the different groups and when there's some kind of base of initial, I won't call it necessarily full trust, but an initial trust in each other that we're really here together to learn and to get to know each other beyond the narrative that we will normally get if we start off immediately in a political conversation, because that's usually what happens here in the Middle East. If you meet a Palestinian tomorrow and you say, hey, how does it feel like to live like this or like this, or what do you think about water issues, it will immediately get into a political narrative, which usually will be a very expected narrative from both sides. The Palestinians and Israelis usually think they know which, what they're going to say. And in this case, I think the readiness is this very, it's an inner space that is created that is actually willing to take in something that might be different. So it's both our intuition to also feel, is the group really ready to go there? And how deep can we go? And it's the, the very direct uh, communication from the group, which in our case in the Middle East takes time to get there, but we do that. And our methods are all about very alive uh, facilitation. So in almost every session, we'll have time where people can share where they are and their feedback and what are their needs in the program. And that's how we build up to that moment. And that's how we design the continuation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and people are coming. I mean, I, I feel like most of us know something about conflict in the Middle East. But, but people are coming with thousands of years of conflict story, right? A lot to overcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. It's generational. Yeah. It's, it's so much to unpack. And uh, you know, many times we will just have time to scratch the surface and know that the work and the commitment will, will be taking place and leading the future. So most of our work is about creating a commitment to continuation in engaging in such, in such deep work. But like you said, this is, I was just thinking before the call, like, there's so many reasons to explain why this conflict is such um, why does it seem so intractable, and why is it so complex? Mm -hmm. It's thousands of years, and it's the last 70 plus years, but I think the, the most complicated component is the intergenerational aspect of this conflict, that people are born to it as a, as a way that they don't know anything else, and it shapes the identity of both people. And then, you know, we have to be, all of us, quite brave to challenge our own construction of identity. That's not an easy task to do. So many times when I explain about my work and I say, hey, if I would invite you, Alicia, to come on a journey where you're going to go to places where you think your life can be in danger, where you're going to completely challenge what you think you know about your own national narrative and your own identity, would you come with me? And of course people say, I don't know, would you come? <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe you're I special. Mean, yeah. Well, no, honestly, I think that desperation would lead me to it if I was really, mm. um, if I really had been cultivated like that through my life, that if I was looking at a future where 
my community, where my family, where my children weren't going to have drinking water. Or I just saw an advertisement for canned air, actually. And actually it was being sold in the Middle East. Um, I, that would bring me to the table. And, of course, I'm just conjecturing because you know me. I haven't been, um, you know, I haven't grown up there like, like you and, and your family. Um, but, yeah, those environmental issues, the desperation and looking to the future would definitely bring me to the table. I'm curious then, are you finding that? Is that what is bringing people to the table to do this work, this ecological work and peace building work? Why, why are people participating with you? Yeah. <laughs> I think desperation is a big one. And, you know, on the other side of desperation is hope. So I think people mm-hmm. here constantly, and in like in most conflict zones, move every single day we can move. I can move sometimes 10 times in one day between feeling hope and feeling desperate, feeling hope, feeling desperate. You know, whenever I look at the news and what's happening on the leadership scale, of course, I can feel very desperate. And when I look at the daily changes that I witness in the eyes and the hearts of the people I work with, I feel so hopeful. So definitely it's both despair and this feeling of, you know, some people come because they're like, we feel at a dead end, so why not try this too? And other people come because they are still hopeful and they're looking for a little thread to hold on to. And some people are really very deeply connected to this land in the very, like, pure way of it. They love this land, and they're very open to trying to find ways to make this work. But it is a matter of survival. And what brings people Mm -hmm. to the table is, I think, beyond the desperation and survival is is this integrated approach. So, yeah, I don't tell people up front, this is, you know, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to go through this deep quest about what we think about ourselves and where we come from and the environment. And I don't say that. What we do is we create relevant themes. And relevant themes like our projects work because they're relevant to the lives of our communities. And that's where the economic, environmental, and social aspects come in. So we always try to find the type of win-win situation and design where an environmental project, and I'll give an example, Um, also solves some kind of environmental hazard or problem regarding a natural resource and could provide some income to the community. Because especially in the southern regions of Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, we're talking about the peripheries of all three regions, the poorest areas. And of course, you can't even compare the very different quality and standards of life between the three regions I mentioned. But all of them are what's common. They're in the lowest social economic um, development of each of Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. And for example, a, a community group in doing our USAID project called Water Matters in Jordan, while they were doing this mapping of environmental issues, they looked at a, a problem that they have, which is wool from sheep being thrown into the streets in the time of the year where the sheep are being shaved. And they're just piled up. The wool is piled up, polluting water resources, being solid waste pollution in the streets. And nobody is doing anything about it. So this group decided to take the wool and through traditional methods that very few women actually hold in Jordan, process it into yarn and color it with natural dyes and artificial dyes and actually make carpets and other products 
from which also a few of the women again remember how to do traditional weaving. So they've been teaching other women how to do that, and they've been selling uh, what they've been making, these carpets and other products, to part of our network and another project we have about women entrepreneurship, which combines environmental and economic well-being through arts and crafts and traditional knowledge. So I think this is a really good example of how we make it relevant. Because if we don't have the economic perspective at this point and the community leadership, it would be very challenging for our communities to take part. Mm-hmm. And um, and all of this, you know, that we're we're talking about, I keep feeling because one of the things, of course, that you and I really share is kind of this common heartbeat with the earth and our love of nature, and our love of earth. And I, <clears throat> I really liked. Um, like I went straight to desperation on what would bring me to the table and you brought forward love of land, love of earth. And um, can you share about that feeling in the Middle East, the heart of the people and the heart of the land, Rena? Yeah. So the heart of this land is very ancient and it's very alive. And I can share that to what happened to me. You know, there was a very strange moment in my life where I decided to stay in the Middle East and engage in this work. And it was purely a moment of being alone in nature and um, in the Dead Sea area, which local people know as the Qumran. It's um, the high desert above the Dead Sea. It's, uh, I wouldn't say untouched desert, but very close to untouched in our terms and very... Um, very magical, very profound, having this in the the contrast of the Dead Sea. And there was just these days where something happened. I I couldn't never exactly put it in words, but I really, it was the first time I I felt a very strong connection to this land and as if the land was starting to talk with me through through its being and through the stories, also the past of what has happened here. And sometimes... Um, it's a very complex past, uh, but that was the beginning of this relationship uh, that I started looking at the land differently. Because until that moment, I was I was already I fell in love with nature as I share when I was 16, and it actually happened in Alaska when I decided, or it happened in my heart that I knew that my life will be dedicated to working on environmental issues. But it was only at this age of 21 when I was marking hiking trails and walking alone in the desert that I had that same feeling with this land. Until then, it just it didn't happen yet. So it was through the experiences, which I think, as you and I know too, are irreplaceable. The unmediated experiences between us and the creation, us and the environment. Um, those are the moments where the magic happens, when the relationship is established and when there's no space for any words, and we just we have time to be and to know and to listen. And these type of experiences were combined at the same time I was meeting people. I was meeting Palestinians for the first time in my life. Um, and that's when I realized also that I really didn't know much about the, the lives and the stories of the communities of the land. And at the same time, I was working with people from the extreme right wing uh, political spectrum, living in settlements in uh, in Israel. So I would visit the settlement and I would visit the Palestinian 
villages and friends I made at the same time, knowing that I need to see and hear and experience the people of this land through my feet and through my eyes. And that's what, um, that's where the change happened. And when I realized that I need to expand my ability to contain all the different stories, because it's a lot of what we do in conflict work is a lot about understanding that no matter how strong we believe in our narrative, there is another narrative. And to start mm-hmm. seeing how these narratives are constructed, but to open our hearts and our minds to understand that each side has a narrative and each side brings a wealth of knowledge, experience, and history and hard feelings and, and everything they are to the table. And I believe it's an inner space we need to make if we want to do this work to be able to contain that, and that's not easy. But for me, this is the essence of this work is about containing the complexity and not taking it in, in in an unhealthy way, but just allowing ourselves, and this can happen through a good relationship with creation, to expand our being in such a way. That's beautiful, and you bring that to, uh, to, to everyone you touch, I'm sure. There and I, I know some of the other people you work with too. They're also pretty incredible. Um, and so, so I'm assuming that you find in communities that you're working with, there must be also people that hold this deep heart feeling with the land, and um, and this love of place where generations of their families and people have have grown and. Um, really strong, I would imagine, sentience of place. Yeah, there's a very strong sense of place. I think um, the personal relationship with the place and with the land is not as it used to be because people, all of us, we spend less time outside. So I do think, like everything, there's not many shortcuts when... I started my work in this field as a backpacking leader, as an outdoor educator, and I did that because I love taking people outdoors, and it was the experience that of this falling in love that I don't feel we can approach through our mind or through statistics. I can give you know, statistics for hours about how we should take care of our environment and what we're doing to our ecosystems. I think we all know that in our minds. But it's the experience mm-hmm. that really changes us and changes our time commitment in life. So here, like everywhere else, I think the relationships are deteriorating. There's still a very strong sense of place. But, you know, it was shocking to me when I was walking the land and marking hiking trails, the one common thread I found everywhere was the issue of pollution. And that was, was devastating mm-hmm. for me, you know, saying people fighting over this holy land and calling it holy but treating it, just trashing it. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a very painful part of the story here because you can't really judge communities in survival. And this has been the issue here, that communities in survival, and this is very known in the environment and conflict nexus, that when you're working in conflict, um, there's environment seems as a luxury. And like you don't have time to take care and learn about ecology because you have to make a living and you have to what you care about is security and economic well-being. That's the patterns of communities and states mm-hmm. in war and conflict. And a lot of our work mm-hmm. is to show, again, how they go hand in hand, that environment and ecology is not, 
it's not a luxury, it's actually around the basics and how can we look at crises like happening in Gaza and many places around the world and look about look to the environmental help that aid can provide right now. So we have a lot of colleagues that are working in Gaza, for example, installing gray water systems, renewable energy systems, solar desalination, and trying to work on alleviating the immediate needs in the communities. And I think it's important just to note for the accuracy of the picture that I'm portraying, that where we are, people don't, um, it's not very mainstream, I would say, to speak about relationship with the land in a holistic or spiritual way. That would be okay. very regarded as very spiritual. Same as here, I don't, I can't even call my work environmental peacemaking. Here I actually call it environmental cooperation because peace mm -hmm. became a political and a charge and even an empty term. So I always laugh, mm -hmm. laugh or look at this with my colleagues that out of the Middle East I use the term environmental peace building, but here I use the term environmental cooperation because that's what we, that's what we need to do. It has to be tangible and relevant. And people are very, and I think it's the same with the relationship with the land. People are looking for tangible things, and uh, mm -hmm. sometimes it can be easily disregarded to, you know, something as wish-washy or too spiritual or too trendy, and uh, we're trying to cultivate a depth. So the language we use is very important in our story here. Mm -hmm. That's important and good to know. And yet it's a... It's a doorway, right? It's a doorway to, to peace, even if that's not what you're calling it there. And it's a doorway to rekindling relationship and sense of land and place. Um, and I would think that those things happen naturally um, in the kind of projects mm -hmm. that you're describing. Yeah. Do, do people yeah. work together? Yeah. Like, do you have Jordanians and Israelis and Palestinians doing, like, hand work together out in projects, or what is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the what time. Does that look like? Nothing I do, yeah, everything I do, I do together with my Palestinian and Jordanian partners, um, mm -hmm. meaning if some people will come to us with a certain, this is also where we are now in our work, that people uh, come to us with ideas, our community members, um, mm -hmm. They can be close by, they can be far away, and they actually seek our advice and support about specific uh, topics. So, for example, there's an initiative now about uh, marine agriculture uh, to be done in an environmental friendly way, and people are looking for partners in Jordan, in Israel, in Tunisia, in Saudi Arabia to study this field together and to study it both on the economic level and environmental level. And and study it to the level of application. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, for example, a, a project that people are working on right now, and we help them facilitate. And when we do that, we always look, we ask our communities what are they interested in, and we help in funding and finding matching the proper resources between topic or a system and donor community. So that's a lot of our work. Um, and right now, the engagement we have around projects have to do, we have a project about desert agriculture for Jordanians and Israelis engaging together and designing um, a pilot project of how, how to take care of both very immediate economic needs through agriculture, but in a way that's suitable for our very hyper-arid hyper 
desert, hyperarid zone. Uh, we have projects in the field of ecotourism, where Palestinians, Jordanians, and Israelis are creating together um, products, packages, in which tourists from all over the world, and especially the US and Europe, come here and engage with the region in some of what I shared in a meaningful way, in a way that is led by the local communities, in a way that supports the local communities directly. So they're creating these packages and we're working on marketing them to create viable income and to expose people, to give them a chance for the world to see what's really happening here, not from the news. Uh, we have mm -hmm. projects in the field of entrepreneurship and leadership, specifically targeting women and finding these creative ways where women can work flexibly, work from home, revive environmental traditional knowledge, and also create new prototypes of environmental art. For example, taking tractor tires, which is abundant, which are abundant here in Daraba, and turning them to traditional weaving uh, methods into baskets or into carpets that can be used in, uh, in cars, etc. Um, so these are a few. And then we have projects that are um, a lot to do with the cultural value of environment and ones that have to do with specific um, technologies, as I mentioned, where the community will choose a specific technology to implement in their village or community that can improve a specific issue. And we're working now, we're just starting a project that um, has just received approval by the European Union. This is a Palestinian Israeli project in which the participants will design these type of ecosystems and produce policy proposals, so policy recommendations to the authorities of how to better the management of shared environmental resources and how to target dire problems, especially in the area a, B, and C, especially in the West Bank, um, that are shared by even settlements and Palestinian communities. So that's a glimpse of what we're working on right now at the moment with many partners. That's, uh, I, know. Ella, I know you. I know all the different threads that you can hold in your mind. That's a lot. Those are a lot of big projects, Rena. <laughs> 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 That's amazing. You had mentioned um, some initiatives that specifically focus on women. And when we were um, preparing for the teleseminar today, and we kind of weave things into that, we have um, these things, that, these nature inspirations that we put out um, every week called Earth Rights. And we try and weave as we head into these teleseminars things that relate if we can. And one of the things that we began to weave in as we were heading towards this teleseminar with you um, were quotes and different things from powerful women. Um, and so I know that, that people, whether male or female, are powerful allies for peace and for nature. And I'm wondering if you, um, I wonder what your experience is specifically in working with women and what they're bringing right now to, to peace and to nature. Well, yeah. Uh, so I, I love and appreciate the work that you do because I think this is a very a good thread to connect all of our different pieces. And I think what I experienced that women bring right now 
and it can also give a flavor of what women hold in the communities in the Middle East. Here, women are the center of communities. They are the heart, the backbone of a community, especially in the Arab traditional communities. And I've learned this through experience of living in Arab communities in the north, living six months with my family in, in the city of Sakhmin, which is a Palestinian-Israeli town in the western Galilee. Um, and that's where you experience it. Women have this way to, to weave people together, so to bring people together, and to do sometimes the quiet and thorough work that it takes to bring people, different people, to the table which otherwise wouldn't be able to be done. So it's a very, not necessarily egoless, but very uh, wise work on how to be gentle enough to touch people's hearts and bring them to a place where they wouldn't necessarily choose to be and doing it with kindness and in an inviting way that's not in a way misleading, but is also honest. And here the women are very respected in their cultures even though they're very, there can be very clear gender roles in families, this is part of the gender roles in the Arab society of women, that they are at the hearts of the family. So they are listened mm. to as such, and they are regarded to as such. So many times when women lead in projects, people will listen. We were amazed to meet mothers in communities of Jericho speaking sustainability as from a book. And you know they haven't necessarily read that book. They just lived it. They spoke to us about how the bees do their work and how the water care does this. And they weaved it in a way that was so rich and combined memory of how they grew up and what the times right now need. And they did it with love. And what I find as well is that the women at the moment bring this, what I spoke about, this ability to carry complexity. It's something that we have as life carriers, and I can say I experienced mm -hmm. that as a mother, and mm -hmm. being pregnant, giving birth, there's something about holding the fragility of life in my own body, and those very uh, sacred moments between life and death when birth happens, that I think that, for me, I can share that, I feel that increases my ability to hold complexity, as I shared, which in our case, in working in environment and conflict, um, is very much needed. So I think this is a bit of what we bring. And there's also you know, statistics about how peace agreements, when they're done by women negotiators, they have a higher likelihood to last. So there's some very concrete examples from statistics around the world. But I think the, the point right now is to, is to present the, real, the diversity, that women are 50% of population and some places 51. And it's just about bringing that richness that we all have to bring. And in my work, women bring the joy and the heart connection. It's amazing to see the women connecting for the first time. It just happens. And sometimes it happens faster than other groups. Um, but there's this warmth and recognition of you know, what women go through. Even though it's cross-culturally so different, there's this uh, very unique, and I would say, yeah, it's, it's uh, blissful moments when I witness women connecting, it's very easy for them to share about the personal life and the children or lack of children or whatever they go through, they have this personal touch and openness that they bring 
into our meetings that many times will bring also music and dance and just joy of life. So that's, these are some of the qualities that have been present in my work here in the Middle East with our, with our women. And I mean, and like you mentioned, you've given birth of two beautiful children. This is a lot of hold, a lot to hold. There is a lot of complexity and threads. And um, how is it for you to be walking this? this path, this heart path, and this big path out in the world, and being a mother yourself, what's your experience? Uh, I think that's the, um, I feel that's the hardest part, personally, um, is to hold all these pieces together, and and for me, the hardest part as an environmental peace builder and environmental peace entrepreneur and whatever we want to call it, is walking the, walking the talk in my personal life. And it's mm-hmm. a constant, you know, peace work. I take it very, very seriously in my life. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to what we spoke about also before the beginning of this call, the okay. very intimate places that we have inside ourselves every single day, to how we choose to control our reactions and how do I choose to react in every given moment. If I react from compassion, from fear, from anger, trust, understanding. And to me that's... Um, the work as a, as a mother is how to make sure that I have enough energy at the end of the day uh, to be in a good place with my family, with my children, and usually and, and know how to create that balance between the responsibility that I feel and the trust that I have in the work and in something bigger. This is also the place to mention that people always ask me, you know, how, much, how do you do this work when there's so much despair, so much conflict, and so much... Um, feeling of going backwards when we look at the political leadership situation and without the anchor that I have cultivated in something bigger than us, which is, in my words, creation, and we can Mm -hmm. call it God, Elohim, Allah, whatever it is in our language, without this relationship, it would be very, very hard to sustain this work in all levels. And I also have to be grateful Mm -hmm. to the ways of the Lakota people of of your continent of the North America that mm-hmm. embraced me into a lot of these traditions on how to create these unmediated relationships. Mm-hmm. So this is part of what one of the biggest anchors that helps me hold all the different pieces together. And when I face a challenge or when I fail in combining and finding the right balance, uh, then I have ways to work with myself. I have ways to work with my emotions. Marina, I can't hear you, but I can see that you're still there. Actually, we've done technologically really well for you calling in from the Middle East today. Do you want to hang up and call back in? Oh, it was so sweet hearing her speak about I'm back. <laughs> oh, yay. Good. The Good. call just dropped. Yeah. I, I feel like we've done pretty well, actually, being, you know, so our world is so connected in a different way now than it used to be. Um, I actually, we're getting down to the last um, 10 minutes. I don't want to blow past what you were sharing. I feel like it was so important. Um, I, I love that you are so dedicated on a personal level into cultivating peace and 
you know, looking at your own heart and reactions and keeping balance in your life. And do you have anything else? Because you kind of, you did get cut off. Do you have anything else you want to say about that before I ask her question? No, I think that that one, you know, that's one that can go on. I can just say that networks of support and what we have here in our small community really help uh, doing all of this as mothers and professional careers and and what helps me is that this work is my prayer. It's part of my heart. It's part of my walk. So it's in a way, it's all related. I don't see a separation. And I'll just say, because also, if we want to open to questions, um, that we we always invite for cooperation in different continents, and we welcome fellow organizations and individuals that have a calling and an interest in this work to create a relationship to be in touch with us and see how to make this relevant to their lives. So that was something also, something I wanted to add as we're coming Mm -hmm. close to an end. Okay, let me, um, I'm going to see if anybody has questions. And then, of course, I have more questions for you, but I don't want to be, I don't want to be unthoughtful to our community also on the phone. So um, if... Um, our community who's on the phone with us right now, if you would like to um, ask Rena a question or uh, speak to her about anything, if you raise, if you want to raise your hand by pressing star five, I can unmute you. Okay, so um, there is somebody from um, Phoenicia, New York. I'm going to unmute you. Select. Okay. There you go. Can you, um, it's M. Brownstein, it looks like the name that is coming in. You're unmuted from Phoenicia, New York, if you want to speak with Rena. Yes, it's me, Michael Brownstein. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. I can hear you. Thank you, Michael. So I'm a um, poet and a novelist, and I have a new book in which I address a lot of these issues that she's brought up, but I I feel so moved. I I don't know how to even explain this. But first of all, as a man, uh, let me just stay with that. I feel almost like I'm on a different planet in terms of not conceptually, but how men um, act in the world and the uh, the trail of tears that that a lot of them lead without trying to be generalized too much. And a lot of what Rena's been telling is really telling the um, the ageless manifestation of uh, women and especially mothers as the center of community, as the center of the family, as the hearth. And I'm wondering if she can talk about how men can, um, again, this is almost like generalizing too much, but how can men um, manifest in a way that that works rather than seeming to be, when you look at the political situation, it's all these men, you know, uh, doing uh, dictating things that are not working for humanity. So I don't know if I'm going on too long. I just wanted to bring up the fact that I'm a man and I'm a little, I feel a little um, lost in this situ- in, in this. Mm-hmm. how to manifest as a man in this uh, piecework that has to happen? It's a, it's a beautiful question. 
And the first thing I want to tell you is that <laughs> um, my heart opens when I when I hear that, and it's important for me to share that. I feel these times are times of we need to refine the way to deep cooperation between masculine and feminine and men and women. And I'm interested in working with you as a man. Uh, what I'm looking for as a woman is that openness, that open hand that would be open out towards us and inviting us to be back in this together and to be back in the leadership together and to make this space, both the inner space, the mind space, um, to take, to do what that takes. Because it's not easy. We really do sometimes, also not to generalize, but we, we do think very differently sometimes. So I think yeah. if we prepare each other to, we want to do this together, what, how do we learn that? How do we stay curious about how we are different? And then I think that's the most beautiful thing. That's what I'm hoping to see because I'm, I'm missing that. I'm wanting that. And I'm, I'm feeling it's just, you know, it's about reaching out to each other and saying, let's do this together. Let's do this differently than anything history has seen. Let's do it together. And we'll see. I mean, it's, again, it's bigger than us to see if the times are really ready for this. Um, yeah. It might take something different, and I trust the movement as it should happen. Uh, but I just want you to know that I have an open invitation and an open heart towards men in this work. And that's, and I hope it's tangible enough for you, but this image of opening, opening up to see what does it take to bring more women into these spaces just so we have this kind of um, diversity in the space. And what does, so I would ask you, what does that take for you as a man? But that's, again, an ongoing conversation <laughs> that can yeah. go on. That's what I'm interested in. Well, I would like to, uh, without taking up time with at least eight other people standing in line here for this, if you could give me an email address or something where we could communicate to keep this going, you know. Um, and I have a new book, and you can tell by the title, Let's Burn the Flags of All Nations. It's a book of poems. I have a vision for the future, but I, I'm seeing it as, a, as, a, as sort of dominated by male energy, which is not bad, but I would like to that's all that's how i work you know and uh, at mm -hmm. the same time i feel if men can't find their way to um, their vulnerability uh you mm -hmm. we use the word heart that we are uh, we have a big problem you know and um these men who build the rocket ships to go up to the moon where uh, the the earth is suffering so much as a result of their actions and how they got that money i mean all of this has to be addressed somehow you know so rena again without taking up too much time is do you have an email address yeah and i'm, I'm happy to share it it's r i n a rena r n a at a d s s c dot o r g and I, I can also tell Alicia um, mm -hmm. will provide later on more links or ways to, to stay in touch. Okay. A-D-A uh, is in Adam, D is in David, S-S-C? Yes, dot O-R-G. Dot O-R-G, okay. So I will be in touch with you, Michael Brownstein, uh, born Jewish, but I've been on a long road beyond that spiritually. And uh, hopefully we can connect, and I would like to send you a copy of, of this book. But uh, we can do that through the email. 
I think yes. is best. Thank you, Michael. Because we could talk for two hours here, so uh, I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to start that going. You know, uh, because there's somebody behind me wants to speak with you as well. Because it was a beautiful, uh, heartfelt presentation. It was very interesting to me how much more uh, challenging it is for you there in your situation than it might be for someone like me. Uh, no matter how much I'm moved by by the difficulties in the world. You know, sitting in my uh, study in uh, the Catskill Mountains, uh, not threatened by anything, you know. So I commend you on that. It's been beautiful listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. So I'll surrender my my slot here. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Michael. Um, Does anybody else have a question? Uh, Farina or connection. Um, Hillary, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I see that you're um, on the line with us. I don't know if you're in a place where you could talk, but I, um, Hillary does a lot of community um, building work in the U.S. and in the Southwest. And Rena, when you were talking about um, cooperating with other organizations, I thought of Hillary but she's not raising her hand, so she must not be able to talk to us right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, it actually is already um, 1 o'clock for me on the West Coast here. It's 11 o'clock at night for Rina in Israel. Yes. Hi. It's Hillary. (laughs) Hi, Hillary. (laughs) Hi. I couldn't figure out how to work my phone. <laughs> you can come on. Hello. That's awesome. I just wanted to hi. say hi to you, Rena. It was great. It was great listening to you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the shout out, Alicia. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I just when when Rena was talking about cooperating with other people and organizations, I, I thought of you and then your name really caught my um caught my attention. I know you do a lot of community oh. work here and maybe, you know, if not on this call, maybe the two of you can connect later. Yes, your work. absolutely. Absolutely. I was noticing all the similarities too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. Did you want to say anything before mm-hmm. I mute you, Hillary? <laughs> um, no, just thank, thank you, Rena. I, it's, it's really a joy to listen to you and I love hearing more about your work. Thank you, Hillary. It's good to hear you. <laughs> thank you, Hillary. Yeah, thank you. And we'll continue the conversation for sure. Yes, and I, I muted Hillary. Remember I told you I wasn't so techno-savvy with the call? So um, I just want to, as we're kind of wrapping up here, the last piece that I feel is really important for us to hear from you, Rena is uh, I'd love to hear the vision and the prayer that you have in your heart for the work that you do for the people in the land that you love. And uh, if you feel in a space where you could share that with us, I would really love and appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, Lisa, and to people on this call for, for being present with us. And um, my prayer is at the moment is that our 
our hearts and our beings stay open in face of what's happening around us to our environment, to fellow people and countries and communities, and that we find a place where we create through relationship a way that we that our care makes has a meaning that we don't close our hearts and that we find practical and tangible ways to to remain open because it can be very overwhelming and my prayer I know that that um my children are in my heart when I so many times when I get tired or I look at the abundance work still ahead of us I look at my children and the other children I see all around me and I know that as cliche as it is as it is sounds it's really for them to have the ability to have opportunities that we or I didn't necessarily have to know one another to know their environment in an intimate way to have a good place to grow up in a safe place and my prayer is that we that we know in our hearts that everything we we choose to do does matter and that that responsibility doesn't again put us down but actually opens up the space to what is possible and that we we remain in that place of openness and combine the love and the passion with the practical and see they're not separated and my larger prayer is to to Inadama, Mother Earth, as I call her, of this land and all lands, to know that I and we, many, many of us, love her, love you so much, and that you are sacred to us no matter where you are, whether it's the Holy Land or anywhere else. And that for you to know that there's a lot of people who are walking gently on you, treading lightly, and that we are strengthening our relationships so the number of us grows and our generations to come can walk in these ways too. So just know that you are loved, Imanima. And I think uh, this will be it. As I say many times, the sacredness of the land is a lot about our future and our relationships. So I hope this is what we can, what I look forward to, is creating more and more of these kind of relationships around us everywhere we are. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Rena. Thank you for um, for spending this time with us so late for you tonight. And on a personal note, thank you so much for your sisterhood and thank you for your work in the world. Um, I'm going to kind of start to close down. Do you have any closing? Do you want to say anything before we go? Yes, thank you. Thank you for your work and creating <laughs> these platforms for people. <laughs> for yeah. all, of us. all right. Thank you, Rena, and thank you to everybody who joined us today um, on December 22nd. We have a one members-only event with um, Visioning Council member April Sanhauser, which is Stories for the Solstice. And then our next teleseminar is with Janine Marie Hagen, who is a philosopher, writer, teacher. Um, She is a regular teacher at Esalon and is involved in the Animus organization. And her teleseminar is Cultivating Intimacy with a Great Intelligence and Imagination of Earth. And that's January 12th. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. And a recording will be available on our website um, sometime in the first half of this week. Have a great Sunday. Thank you so much.